Today's episode is brought to you by MetaMask Portfolio. You'll be hearing more about them later on, but for now, let's get into today's interview. Very happy to welcome to Forward Guidance, Anthony Dilweg, founder of Dilweg, a real estate firm uh, investing in commercial real estate in the uh, southeastern region of the United States, uh, particularly offices. Anthony, great to have you here. Can you first uh, start and tell us about your background, which is absolutely fascinating. I believe you uh, used to be a professional football player. So tell us about that wild journey and how did you make the transition from you know, being a quarterback to, to real estate? Happy to. And Jack, thanks for having me on. Certainly a follower. Enjoy your show. I grew up in the Washington, D.C. area. Got a football scholarship to Duke University. You know, like a lot of kids, you dream about playing professional sports. Uh, if it happens, great. But Duke was a choice because I figure not a bad school to go to and earning a scholarship was great uh, at the time. I had three sisters at the University of Maryland, so I would end up probably there. But uh, eventually played there under a great coach, Steve Spurrier. I like to tell people that some of my business acumen came from him indirectly, you know, so I like to share that at times. And then was fortunate enough to get drafted by the Packers, Green Bay Packers, and then played professionally for about four years. And then ended up on a couch in Shreveport, Louisiana in the Canadian Football League my last year. And I pondered quite a bit on that couch going, do I want to continue playing football or had an inch to get into business? Always loved the entrepreneur side. So jumped into real estate in the early 90s. What drew you to real estate in particular? And is there any, you know, football, like many sports, like almost all sports, it is, a, you know, physical, but it's also strategic. Is there anything you, you know, you could apply from football to, to real estate? Any analogy at all? Or, or no, is that getting too poetic? Well, there's quite a bit, okay. frankly. I mean, I, what drew me to real estate was hit a lot of my press points uh, and love the, the deal concept, engaging with people, you know, kind of asymmetrical negotiations, you know, always trying to find ways to create value, tons of inefficiencies in the business. There's a community component to it. Certainly, you know, the team part is important, driving folks to excellence. And then, you know, it's it's kind of what your spectrum, you know, your risk tolerance is and depends what part of real estate you want to get into. So in playing professional sports, a lot of those things carry over. I don't know any too many athletes that don't, who, who, ultimately do tr uh, transition into, into the business world, especially those who create their own enterprise, don't find a lot of correlations and a lot of takeaways. And, you know, if you were fortunate enough to play for some great coaches, like I felt like I did, even in the NFL, Lindy Infante, they're great field generals. So you watch them, you observe them, you ask a lot of questions, kind of like the Socratic approach to my belief system, you know, to, you know, on questioning folks also, you know, being thoughtful and being a critical thinker, how you assess things, all that comes together. And it's a pretty powerful experience. And I, I feel very blessed that I had that opportunity and, and, and able to transition into, into the business world. So it's the mid to late nineties, you enter the world of real estate. I believe you, you found a uh, Dilweg, your, your firm now in 1999, that world of the late 90s, you know, I, I'm not a real estate guy. I know that you know, ha housing had been going up and there was going to be, you know, a huge housing bubble in the uh, you know, early 2000s. But in the world of commercial real estate, I imagine they're somewhat correlated, but not the same as you know, single family housing. So what, you know, what did you start investing in? What drew you to that? Was it apartment buildings, offices? You know, now I, think, I believe you're mostly offices. You know, we'll, we'll talk about that. But what drew you to that asset class? 
And uh, what was that environment environment like that late you know 90s and then to the early 2000s? So, you know, early 90s, when I got in, I got in as a broker, as a tenant rep, and I got in some investment sales. I figured it was a good way to learn from some of the top landlords in the area or the region, some institutional landlords. It took me a while to earn in there because I was young in the field. Also, the SNL crisis coming out of the late 80s, that was intriguing. I think the first book I believe I read was The Daisy Chain, which is all about the good old days when they used to leverage up 110%, 120% guys to get their fees out. So I heard all these stories. I thought that was intriguing. But I really wanted to learn from the ground up. So I bought a number of rental properties. I don't recommend this for someone starting off, but I remember you know, a lot of my NFL money was tied up at the coast. I invested in a place called Q Island and some of the coastal areas. Not a lot, but I, I remember... Uh, signing up for like 12, no, I'm sorry, like 22 credit cards that you could advance those dollars. I used that as my, one of my first down payments on some duplexes. So super trying to be clever, trying to be creative, but also recognize the, the element um, of hard work. So when I got into it, I'm like, it's an interesting time. The housing market was decently solid. The office market was recovering. I thought it was a great time to be curious and ask a lot of questions and continue to learn with the intent to eventually get into the investment side, less of the brokerage side and the third party business. I always felt like wealth creation would be around there, obviously on the investment side, but also, you know, tremendous amount of risk there too, as you recognize Jack. So all those things, I was young and, you know, probably reckless and didn't, you know, I, I, I was kind of ready fire aim. So I, I, you know, the acceleration was fast and, had a bunch of failures early on and learned from really some really good people. In investing and macroeconomics, there are a lot of you know gurus who can say, oh, I know exactly where the 10 year is going to be. In your world in real estate, a lot of gurus too who say, you know, sign up for my course or get invested in leverage. So the actually successful people such as you do not recommend getting into it and doing what you do because it is so risky. You're maybe a little bit less risky than football, but yeah, you know, 20, 22 credit cards, that that is that is risky. So it's mostly apartment buildings, you know, what now is called like multifamily, you know, rentals. It was single family and, and duplexes. Okay. And then ultimately transitioned into, it was probably, I was, we were more agnostic when I started my company. So we did jump into, it was very opportunistic that I had, and it was, you know, self-storage, some multifamily, you know, these are 150, 200 unit, you know, complexes, self-storage, we grew to about a million square feet, sold, Part of it to Red McCombs out of Texas. So that was a hot, you know, that was a hot, not a hot product at the time. It's become very hot in the last 12 or 15 years. Since I had my roots in office, we did some office and then some flex. So, you know, we were small, we were boutique mostly North Carolina, and then doubled down and transitioned out of the great financial crisis into, into office. <laughs> so I picked the winner. It's been fascinating what we've experienced the last three or four years. Certainly, I know we'll get into it of where that's going and remote working and how it correlates to other real estate. But anyway, I'm super in, intrigued to where it's going to head. Yeah, me too. We'll, we'll get into it in a, in a second. But just so you, you founded Dilweg, investing in you know, self-storage, you know, single family, multifamily rental apartment buildings, and then then office. How do those asset classes differ? Are some riskier than others? Are the, the leases different? And, you know, the valuations we could talk about, you know, cap rates? Like, how are those asset classes different? How were they different then? And how, how are they different now? So I would say then, you know, which this particular sector hasn't changed a whole lot. 
you know, the self-storage sector, which is unique about the barriers of entry are very low, but, you know, <laughs> the great thing when you turned over, you, you, you brim swept the units, right? So it, it wasn't a lot of, not a lot of maintenance, pretty straightforward. But like I said, a lot of people get into it. It's very mom and pop-ish, but, and that hasn't changed. I know it's been more institutionalized. It's gotten more institutional attraction and money in it today. And it's done extremely well. You know, multifamily were value adds. We went in what a lot of folks did here in the last two, three years, which I think it's with rates screaming high is, is going to hurt a lot of these multifamily guys who bought these kind of B and C products and reposition them. I think they're upside, majority of them upside down right now, but we did that back in the nineties and did well. It's good timing for it. You know, wasn't a supply issue in the markets we were in, you know, office was the most capital intensive. I always use that as I felt an advantage if you're super selective and pretty shrewd on how to spend the money, you know, back then, you know, leases were done. We had a five-year office lease. You'd offer a tenant, you know, a, a dollar per square foot year for improvements. And then you'd lean on the tenant to come to, with the money to the table. When they said no, then you'd amortize, you know, maybe another 10 or 15, $20 on top of it. And that's where you get a nice uplift in the rent. And when you cap it out and sell it, you got a premium as long as you, the governor was the per square foot number. So that was, that worked really well for us. That world has changed materially now. You know, tenants want $60, $70. And it really doesn't make sense that, well, office is broken right now. But the other, you know, industrial, we didn't do much industrial, did some retail, you know, open air retail centers, grocery anchored. And those were a classic value add. You know, we, we would work, Jack, we would work the tenant base really hard. We were very active. What I learned is from starting off is I felt like when I represent a lot of the institutional guys, I mean, they were smart, they're bright. I wouldn't call them the savviest group. And they I felt they were babysitting a lot. Like we would go and be aggressive to tenants early and say, listen, this is a three-year-old lease. You got a termination on, or a five-year lease. You have an early termination. It was done four years ago. Maybe can we get that kicked out because it helped us with our value? What if we gave you $100,000 in improvements? We, we'd restructure, try to restructure a whole rent roll. It was a lot of work, but it was there was a lot of upside in that. But it was just rolling up your sleeves you know, being thoughtful, being creative, know how to negotiate and, and being assertive and aggressive there. And I felt a lot of people just wait to the tenant to roll before they hit it. Now, our philosophy was very different. It wasn't easy to do because it was a lot. Of, it's just a lot of work, and a lot of moving parts. And, you you know, you're working with a lot of people that it was hard to get their attention at time, but we've had a lot of success with it. So you said office is the most capital intensive. You don't mean in terms of acquiring the property, you mean in terms of maintaining the property, right? And improving. Yes. You, say yes. Value add, you mean you're adding stuff to it. Yes, no. unless you're you have a pretty strong repositioning, you know, on the acquisition side, cost. Right, right. Okay, so office it, it was the asset class that had people asking for things the most. Is that you know people are people are <laughs> tenants complain more in office because it's a workplace than in their apartment buildings? Is is that what that means or no? Well. <laughs> Depends on the kind of office. Uh, well, depends on the first of all apartment complex you run. You know, if you if you're a B and a C office, I mean, a apartment developer, eh, you're probably getting a lot of complaints, and you're trying to stay ahead. And your tenant base is different. Office, it's a different mindset, right? Because I felt like when we were multifamily, it was, it was more emotional. Office is more, you know, got it's just more sterile, more calculating, more measured. You know, people, you know, it's it's. You got kind of a commercial mindset, except, you know, when you have the residential, just people seem to get more emotional. So 
I liked the office side because I felt that was more, I was built for that. I didn't like the, the emotional side for, I didn't think you got paid enough for the emotion on multifamily. If it got emotional in office, it's not necessarily bad. Usually it, from our experience, leads to, if you know how to navigate it well, it can lead to some great upside if you know how to negotiate well. Yeah, I, 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 I get what you mean. Okay, so at what point did you realize office is where I want to, to really specialize? Well, since I got my roots in it and, you know, certainly was intrigued with the, the business community, the Fortune 500 companies, you know, tech was expanding or has been expanding, obviously, over the years, finance, fintech. It's just intriguing to get to know the tenants, know their business plan uh, or, or get, a, get a glimpse into the business plan, get a glimpse in their P&L. You know, talk to the CEOs. So you learn a lot about the business community. And I I found that a lot more intriguing than dealing with residential tenants and then also shopping centers, although retail is intriguing, you know, I'm sure pretty interesting to a lot of folks, but I just found the business side just kind of where it was going. And, you know, it's been the core for this country for a, a number of years. So it was just an area that, and I thought we were well tooled. We had a lot of talent there and it just felt like a good position to to a good foundational position for the company to, to steer toward. Right. And I guess now is a good time to talk about interest rates. And we're, we're still we're still in the early 2000s. So, you know, in the, the finance professors, when they talk about the stock market, they say, oh, you know, if interest rates are at zero and the, the 10 years at 1% or 2%, equities you know, that earn 5% on their return, they, that's a, a 3% you know, risk premium. But if interest rates go to 5%, then the risk premium should you know, adjust higher, and so stock should be worth less. And in theory, that works, but you know, interest rates have gone up a ton this year, and the stock market has gone up a ton. In real estate, is it a little bit more mathematical where you know, if, if your leverage and interest rates go up, you know, the, the cap rate should go up accordingly? You know, in other words, like in 2003, when you had a huge you know, collapse in interest rates when the Federal Reserve cut rates, after the you know dot, dot com recession, which in retrospect was was quite mild. I mean, was that a was that kind of a boom to to real estate developers such as yourself, as well as you know homeowners? It's that's one of the probably significant material debates in our industry over the last I don't know, fifty years. Does it correlate cap rates with interest rates? You know, Peter Lindemann is a guy that you know is well regarded in our industry as an economist. He's been at Wharton. You know, he's that said that, you know, you got to really careful these statements, right? Because they're all nuanced, right? So he's, he said, well, you know, they really don't correlate. I don't know. I mean, I've been doing this for quite a, a bit. And with the violent upturn that we just experienced or we're experienced in, in interest rates, you know, it's impacted this sector pretty, you know, our, our area pretty um, significantly. Plus the 10-year, you know, 10-year now, you know, when it went to five and now it's back to what, four, 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 five. That's a measurement. It looks like it's going to be sticky there. That's been a jolt to the system. It's like real estate, probably the real estate guys, it's like it's such a slow moving business mm -hmm. and your behavior change is such a part of it. And the challenge is your mind may be way ahead of really what the market's doing. I find that as a big challenge in our world. So it's a, it's a big lagger. It's not a great forward indicator. And I think these, you know, the interest rates absolutely do impact real estate even more. This is, this is, unprecedented in my opinion you know now i've only been doing this 30 years obviously you've studied history and and i've listened to some of your podcasts about you know the debate on recession are we in a recession or not i'm tired of the conversation i'm a slice guy there's different sectors doing great other places are depression some are recession it's very complicated today i think we yes. like to throw things in bundles and are, and are the you know interest rates going to lag are we going to 
somehow get out of this, you know, MMT get a kickback. I don't, you know, Powell seems like he's going to hold on longer here. Actually, I think it's probably in some ways really good. You know, stuff's going to break here. I'm seeing it. I'm on the front line. So I'm seeing a lot of things. We're anticipating a lot of issues here that haven't materialized left. And, you know, we're at 20 office is a $20 trillion sector in the U.S., roughly, if you took 5 billion square feet. And we're, people are talking about rates. I mean, they're talking about, you know, uh, maturity of loans the next, you know, 1.5 trillion in, I don't know, 18, 24, uh, you know, 15, 18 months. That's not my concern. It's all the, it's the eight, seven, eight trillion we have in commercial office right now that if people are being honest and you mark to market, which no one is. It's not pretty. It's, it's really ugly. Not saying you can't get through it and navigate. There's all kinds of tricks and avenues and we've gotten really good and creative doing that, but interest rates, it's been a huge blow. A huge blow. Let's talk about that. I should say, so right now you, you have a uh, $2 billion in assets under management and 5.5 uh, square footage under management at, at, at Dilweg. So in the stock market, everything's trading and the stock goes up 10% in one day. Are the future cash flows 10% higher? You know, that, that every, obviously people who are trading every day, they, they take it way too far on one side of the spectrum. On the other side of the spectrum, people who you know, invest in asset classes that are do not trade for many, many years, it's hard to see where the value is at all. You know, is that fair to say, I, I mean, I think you were saying in real estate, you know, if you acquired some building in 2018 and your, your cash flow, your net operating income of, of you know, the, I guess the rent minus the expenses, you're, you're dividing that by the price of the property to get your cap rate. Are you using the price of the property or are people in real estate using the price of property from 2018? Are they getting an auditor to say, what is it valued in 2021? What if those values differ from 2018 to 2021 or from 2021 to to 2023? So let's anchor on forecasting because that's what our sector likes to do a lot. And structurally, the challenge I think we're having right now, and we'll just focus on office. I think some of the sectors certainly are having some of their own issues. Multifamily, I think it's going to be worse than people expect, in my opinion, but could be wrong, certainly. It depends, it depends where and, and the product type. So we forecast out and we look at variables. We look like, okay, what's the retention of tenants going for? For, you know, maybe we typically have used 65, 70%. And now we're debating whether it's 50% or 25%. That's a big, that's a material move. And are the, are the future tenants going to contract or not contract? This is on top of studying your rent roll. Okay, what sector is every tenant in? Look at your rent roll. We got a thousand tenants. What sector are they in? What's the credit? What's the forecast? What's the leadership? What's the culture like? You're looking at all that you're scrutinizing. And then you're then you got them on this, you know, you got them on a, a forward pipe, a forward assumption channel where you got maybe 25 tenants in a building and they're either rolling next year or in six months or five years from now. And you're running an analysis against the retention on that. And then what's the cost to retain? So is that component to it? And then cost retain, on, what does that mean, cost retain? Oh, to, so when renew a tenant, for example, you know, does it cost $15 in TI allowance to retain them or $30? Do we have to give them six months free rent or 12 months free rent? Do we have to lower the rent? So there's a front end transaction cost. So on a 10,000 square foot lease, it costs you $250,000 to pay the broker and to get the tenant some tenant improvements. You know, So there, that's the front end transaction cost. And then you know, Jack, you don't, you don't really get paid back on this stuff, you know, for a while. Like you look at, you, you, you run these analysis, like, wait a second, it's a, it's a five-year deal and we're putting up these dollars, good credit, but we don't get a return. You know, the money we outlaid and the cost of that money, it may be two years, two and a half years before we get paid back. And people, the way to bail out of it is you, 
you find ways to increase your face rate. So the next buyer will buy that income stream, the higher rental rate. Now they're going to do their studies and they're going to understand the market conditions. You got to stay within a band and they're going to find a way to go say, can we make money with all the capital investments going forward? Ultimately when we exit. So we run these on retaining tenants, recruiting tenants, and then certainly the stuff you mentioned earlier about the cost to, you know, to a functional and cosmetic costs in the building, which are pretty significant at times. Um, so you add all that up and then you put a future cap rate on it. And right now, you know, office, you know, was trading in the five and a half to the seven and a half. And, you know, we're seeing deals in the 10 to 15 cap range. So it's all upside down. So all these, you know, and plus, because it's so broken, what is the man, what's the future of office? The debate is if, if the internet to, to shopping malls, you know, is like remote to office now. Well, we had 20, supposedly about 2,400 malls in this country. Now it's down to 700, but that was over 20 years. This is, this is really quick. It's hitting hard. So it's, and it's a big sector. It's not the mall sector and it's in the heart of cities right now. You got New York, you got San Francisco, you got Portland, you got Seattle, you got Austin having problems. These cities have their hands full, not to mention the suburban stuff. So all that stuff adds up. It's, it's pretty fascinating. Yeah. And, and so I think none of your buildings are in those you know, major Northeast or, or, you know, California city. So you're, you're not quite in the eye of the storm, but you're definitely, I don't, I don't know, maybe, maybe, I mean, are you, are you seeing it in the, in the Southeast? Or we are. You, okay. Okay. <laughs> we're in downtown Atlanta. We're in Dallas, Charlotte, smaller secondaries. Charlotte's uptown area is going to take years to recover. I mean, the office B property is probably going to 50% vacancy. If you actually count in sublet space, which people shadow space is a whole different debate and discussion. People can contracting, you know, people want something cool, funky, urban, experiential. And there's this collision between hospitality and office debate, which we're on that board. This just, you got to reimagine the space. So, you know, these traditional like, okay, office goes here, retail goes here, multifamily. I know we've worked over the last 20 years to kind of disrupt that, but I think it's really getting disrupted now. And these cities in the Southeast are getting hit by it. Uh, so Miami's not, Miami's got their own dynamics doing well. Um, but you know, that's in the suburban office, we see that and there's, there's stuff in the suburban side that I'd say it's a race to the bottom that ultimately they're going to get scraped and be repurposed or, you know, rezoned property rezone. We're selling a property to DR Horton housing industry. You know, mm -hmm. you've got speakers. Are we 3 million under house, 8 million? I don't, you know, you know, sometimes it, we'll see. I, 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 I like to look at research. I look at a lot of research and I'm always skeptical, but, but, you know, we've got an office building under contract in Atlanta for it's a hundred thousand square feet and they're going to scrape it and put 80 townhouses on it. And I think that we're seeing more of that in our space and great, um, a really ideal premium locations. So you sold a building to developers who are going to scrape and turn it to, from an office building to an apartment building. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Okay. And that, that trends, I mean, Jack, you got 5 billion square feet, roughly. This is CoStar data and CBRE. That CoStar is a primary data source for our industry, a public company. And then you got CBRE, you know, these real estate companies, JLL, get about 5 billion square feet. The debate is you've, you, you've had roughly about 400 to 500 um, million square feet as a float, as vacancy. So the debate now is, you know, my base case, you know, we're going to be, have a billion to billion and a half square feet on top of that float that's obsolete in the next three to five years. Those are the debates are going around. That's frankly kind of my base case. Upside, I'm not sure what that looks like right now. Downside, 
So there is, we think there's tremendous opportunities to go in and repurpose office buildings. You hear a lot about the multifamily. I think that's going to be a lot smaller than people are hoping. You know, it's a lot of work. It's you got to get the building down to 25 bucks a square foot. It's very low. Guys are expert. We're studying that space pretty hard, but this stuff is what's coming. And I think all these people are white knuckling it, trying to put money in deal, trying to hold on. I'm not saying things can pivot, but I, I just don't see it. I don't, I think interest rates are going to remain higher for a while. For a while. I know mm -hmm. that's being discussed. That's a big jolt. And office structurally is broken until demand is figured out. You know, I think you're going to have some of your largest REITs, I think, are under all kinds of pressure right now. You got Blackstone. Those, those guys throw, throw the keys back. We've thrown the keys back. We try yeah. to work it out. We got lenders. You know, we're battling lenders right now, restructuring across the board. Our investors are worn out, Jack, worn out because they've been putting money in. We've got endowments. We got family offices, had some private equity relationship. But so for a guy like me who's opportunistic value yet, if I can survive, get to the other side of this, because we're getting beat up pretty good, it's I think it's gonna be an extraordinary chance to create wealth in the real estate space. Yeah, you you know that you're getting beat up and you're you're realistic about it. I feel like the people you know who are saying, Oh, actually, things are fine. And uh, we're going back to this 2019 world where everyone's going to the office seven days a week. You know, if you're a little unrealistic, those are the people who might get carried out. But you're realistic, realistic which is good. Yeah, it's, yeah, and certainly, Jack, you make an interesting point, right? Because these guys, have, you know, it's it's if they have if they can play it out and get enough leadway at the lender, it's one thing. And, and great financial crisis, we we bought a bunch of debt back at a discount. We tried to negotiate with lenders; they basically capitulated. We actually felt we had enough visibility to buy back at a discount. This is what we did. We felt good about the fundamentals. I just think for you know, certainly for office right now. You can't have somebody being honest and frank on any conversation today and say they have a clear picture where they think it's going to go. Now, there are markers like related group Hudson Yard in New York. Those guys are, I think, doubling down on newer product. There is a flight to quality. I don't mm -hmm. disagree with that. And we have a creative single story office, you know, dropping in a brewery, doing riding birds around, putting climbing walls up. I, I think that's good. That's helpful. But, you know, at the end of the day, my my stronger belief system is. Companies have to get their culture right to get people back in the office. You got to create FOMO. You can do all these cool kind of tricked out amenities. But if you don't get your culture right and people don't feel like they're missing out and we're a culture, you know, we want to be together, but you better have a compelling reason because right now technology is kicking its ass. It's doing a pretty good, damn good job right now. So that's the, that's the friction and the tension I see. Yes, but at the same time, Zoom, where people are doing all this remote stuff, they told their employees that they have to go back to work. So there is, you know, there's two sides to every story. Yeah, but Jack, but let me tell you something. For every CEO that is telling you that, that says that, and let's say for every 100 CEOs that are telling you that, I'm talking to those CEOs of those 100, I may be talking to a small portion of them. It's very squishy. Their policy yeah, yeah. about people going back to the office. In fact, if you look at Castle data, Castle systems, mm -hmm. they, they monitor card swipes in buildings. And their methodology is wonky because what they do is they swipe it once and they count you in and that's flatlined. They got 2,600 properties in the U S and 47 States. And they, they, they hit you as a one card swipe, Jack, you go in the building and you count in for, for the day. Okay. And it, it went from, they, 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 they did it right to COVID. They, they, they said hundred percent, they used hundred percent, which is probably you and I would understand that Fridays were probably half day before COVID anyway. Mm -hmm. And that plummeted to 15% utilization rate. So people actually go in the office, but it's just a swipe. Doesn't say how long you're there. It went up from 15% in 
in the first 18 months to 40%. Then over the next 12 months, it went to 50% and it's flatlined for the last year now. Are you talking about Fridays or every day? Every day. Pardon me? Are you talking about Fridays or every day of the week? No, the every day of the week, cumulative. Okay. So I'm, I'm making, I think it, first of all, those are nicer buildings. Second of all, I think that's overstated, the 50%. And I'm talking to these guys about people going back to the, I think it's, I think they're trying, we need, listen, there's the component that I'm not, I'm not, I'm not doomsayer to say that where no one's going back to the office. I think it's hybrid, maybe two or three or four days a week and maybe half, but you know, and I don't really like the, we're, we're, we're shifting to Pacer AI, which is going to monitor more cell phone use. So we can see exactly who's in the office, not who we know by cell phone data for how long, so we can mark it and you can distinguish between visitors and, and, and tenants. So there's a lot of work to be done here. You got to be careful about what statements you make, but I don't know. I'm living it every day. And you got to be careful when you're in the trenches because sometimes it gets so dark. So you got to get some elevation to get some perspective. So we try to balance that out. But yeah, you don't want to get you don't want to get out of the trench for too long because the trench protects no, no, you. No, 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 no. <laughs> so you said utilization rate. Is that similar or the same thing as occupancy rates, which I've also seen this whole data report? So it's an important question. So utilization rate would be okay. A, a, um, a tenant has forty full time employees. And, you know, 10 of those employees are in for the day, for the entire, for the entire day. I'm going to say an eight hour day, that'd be utilization rate of 25%, mm-hmm. but a occupancy of hundred percent. I mean, they occupy the space. Mm-hmm. So this is where it gets very careful the way people throw words around and stuff like that. So you got to really look at like, I just go back to when people say, oh yeah, these guys are, they're back in the office. I, you know, I just talked to one of our larger lenders and their policies get everybody back in the office. I said, okay, what does that really mean? They said, well, they say five days a week, but they don't, they don't really monitor us, but you know, we have to just make sure we check in on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. I'm like, all right. I'm, I'm talking to every, every time I have a chance to talk to somebody, I, I get a little insight. I haven't heard anybody. I've met anybody back yet after talking to that Monday to Friday full time, which I wouldn't suspect, but it's, you know, it's, it's going to land somewhere in the middle. Really? No companies? There must be companies that are Monday to Friday, like a, a law firm, an investment business. There must be companies. I mean, that's what you I, hear, I, right? I, I, well, so we're clear. My sample size is not huge, but I'd love for, you know, for someone that has all their, every one of their employees showed up for at eight or nine in the morning on a Monday and go till Friday at five. I'm like, I don't buy it. But that's, yeah. that's, that wasn't going on. Friday was half. I, I think we got to be, have an intellectual, honest conversation about where we think it's, you know, talk to people, ask, you know, got to get to data. You know, it's, there's a lot of conversation. And if it's two to three times a week, which would, you know, Tuesday through Wednesday, it is what it is. That's why we, we, we launched a business, small fund on SDRs and Airbnb. We're in small towns in North Carolina right now, like Blowing Rock, North Carolina, Elkin converting old commercial buildings to Airbnb. And on Friday and Monday, we're offering to our tenants to say, hey, listen, take your family to the mountains, you know, enjoy it. It's set up internet. You can do business on Monday and Friday. And I think your Monday and Fridays are going to just create a longer weekend. That's why I think hospitality is interesting, how that's going to play up. You know, and people want, you know, the experiential sides of part of it too. But um, yeah, a lot of moving parts in there. Okay, so occupancy just looks at are people in the building? Utilization is maybe a little bit more holistic, looking at how long are they actually for. So, but but the occupancy data that I'd seen showed, yeah, maybe Castle uh, it flatlining at fifty percent. But that that doesn't mean, and you know, to someone who's not in the business, I I had to learn this. Occupancy is different than vacancy. Vacancy is what, from a financial perspective, matters. 
are the landlords being paid? Are are, are you know, are there tenants in the building? Occupancy are are there are the employees and then the people actually using the product and going into the building? So, for example, in the summer of 2020, when you you could walk down New York and see all offices, you know, none, none of them had any lights on. You could get a little you know worried about are the landlords being paid? But actually, at the time, I didn't know this, but they were they were because you know the leases for for those are, are very long. So earlier, maybe 10 minutes, 20 minutes ago, you said you think vacancy will go to 50 percent. And if you said occupancy at 50%, you know, that's already already true. But you said vacancy. So you mean that literally h- half of the offices, not, not only people are not in the building, but they won't have tenants. I mean, that is that's it's pretty drastic. Yeah. So it's no, it's a really important point. And you're hitting some really areas that, that makes this thing nuanced. Back to like utilization, occupancy, there's what they call shadow space which is like sublet space that, you know, the tenant likely is not going to renew and they're trying to sublet. So we don't like to compete with sublet space because that makes it more difficult. And then you have credit issues if if people are delinquent, not paying the rent. So you're kind of looking at, okay, what's the total occupancy, you know, eligible paying tenants. So you could be at 93% on that if everybody paid and it's, it's not relevant to who's in the building, who's not in the building, but you have contract leases. And then it kind of goes, then you're kind of looking at, is it, are we in a market that you think that's going to improve and there's stickiness to it or is deteriorating? That all is deteriorating. So when you see stats, when people go, oh, there's 13% vacancy, the most it's been. When I say 50% and I was, and, and just so I'm clear, I wasn't talking about, unless I was talking about Uptown Charlotte in the context of class B, you know, shadow space and direct vacancy. The shadow space is the one that's kind of elevated things. And, and I think it's heading that direction. We have sub markets. Like I have co-star data I'm pulling in. Some, some markets in the Southeast, they do what they call availability space, which is basically sublet indirect. And you like to know the difference between the two, because if your direct is 8%, but your sublet space is, you know, makes up 20% of that's here at 28% total, you're going to study the sublet space pretty hard because some people are just testing the market. They may come back and take the space back in. You got to study those tenants. Some of these things, I've seen in the markets are, you know, between 30 and 35%. In my world, as an investor, I read the headlines. I'm like, it's, listen, the headlines are always tricky. The press is tricky. They're going to, you're going to frame it up. You're going to interpret the way you want to interpret it. So you got to ask a lot of qualifying questions, which, which I love about your podcast. Jack, you do a great job of probing and asking questions. You're so curious. It's really good. So that's when you get to the meat of it. You can see what's going on. I'm just seeing this train wreck being created by structurally the demand components. And I had data there, like VTS is a software used to track every tenant activity in our portfolio and new inbound traffic, whether it's inquiries, prospects, tours, LOIs, um, proposals, doing leases. Their demand metrics, where they track a lot of buildings in the US, the demand is now hovering around 50%. And some cities, it's like, I think Portland's like 21%. So all the demand that we saw pre-COVID has dropped materially. Plus people aren't retained. They're not sticking around as long and they're shrinking. You add all that up. It's a lot worse than the headlines. So I see that. So I'm really? like, oh, what's the lag effect? And we're slow and you've had interest rates and it's a $20, $20 trillion industry. If you're not marking to market, I don't know, 24 and 25 and, the, and lenders, listen, if you're being honest, if you marked, you know, two thirds of the U.S. banks and, and you know, if you look at the U.S. banks, you know, mark their market with, with all the treasuries they got, you know, yep, from two yep. years ago, you mark that, you mark real estate, everything else, they're insolvent. I know there's ways around and workarounds and stuff like that, but you know, no one's got to sell something. You're not going to take the hit. 
Absolutely. The, but first of all, by the way, go. So you know, thank you so much for for, for saying those, those kind words. I had done a few episodes in commercial real estate. I'd say a, a fair number of them were somewhat bearish. So I was looking forward to this. Oh, I'm actually going to talk to someone on the ground, and he's going to say, Jack, you know, the headlines are super negative, but they're actually, you know, they're they're cherry picking bad bad data. Actually, the <laughs> fundamentals are a lot better. You know, because you talk to institutional investors, they they tend to be a little bit more 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 rosy. But you're saying actually no, the headlines don't are, are not are not bad enough. It's actually much worse than the headlines. Correct. Yes. Yes. And listen, you asked also. So, you know, you like to say you know are, are people? I like to are you an optimist or a pessimist, and then you're going to read the market that way. So, and and I know there's some adjustments and recalibration on some of those conversations. I mean, I would say. I'm an offensive guy, played quarterback. I, I see I'm a bullish guy. I see opportunity. You know, I, I, I recognize the value of a great defense. I recognize, you know, asymmetrical warfare. You got to know when to brawl. And, you know, you're forecasting a lot. And at least in our space, you know, I think the guys who got ahead are early, you know, well, early doesn't really mean anything. It's going to take some time to play out. What's intriguing to me, which gets me very excited, is why I believe the opportunity is going to be on the other side of this. Because with this material dislocation, distortion, destruction, and listen, it didn't help. You know, when the Fed pumps $9 trillion into the system and you get MMT, all this stuff going in, and, you know, look at household net worth. You know, I, in 2000, it was $42 trillion, now it's $154 trillion. There's a lot of wealth in this country. When you have that kind of money sloshing around the system, it distorts things. It's distorted our industry. So, to get that some of that out of the system with Palestine, I, you know, I'm actually like, we got to, we got to get things corrected here. And we don't, <laughs> we don't have a strong appetite for that. You know, we like to bail ourselves out and, you know, that's, that's a problem. It's made my life more difficult as an operator. Today's interview is brought to you by MetaMask Portfolio, your one-stop shop to manage your crypto assets and access a range of Web3 services all in one place. Overseeing your crypto assets across different wallets and networks can be very complicated. MetaMask Portfolio solves this by giving you the reins to manage your crypto from a single decentralized application or dApp. Just connect to MetaMask Portfolio to get a bird's eye view of all your coins, tokens, and NFTs, and you can easily buy, sell, swap, bridge, and stake crypto assets at competitive rates right within the app from a vetted list of providers. No more jumping between dozens of sites and apps. MetaMask Portfolio lets you do more in Web3 your way, giving you secure and convenient access to a wide range of features and services all in one place. Manage your portfolio your way with MetaMask Portfolio. Click the link in the description of today's episode to get started. Thanks. Let's get back to the interview. You talked about earlier the banks having issues with mark-to-markets. You know, treasury security or a mortgage-backed security, you just put it into a calculator. Oh, this was $100, and now with interest rates here, much, much higher, it's worth $82. And in mark-to-market, you know, that's pretty simple. But with real estate, it's in the eye of the beholder. So it's tough. Is, is this building that was valued at, you know, $500 million, is this building still worth half a billion dollars? I mean, I don't know. I can't put that into my calculator. You know, my calculator is saying, I don't, I don't, you know, so, so it's, it's tough. And, and earlier when you're saying the office space, it wasn't the five to 7.5% cap rate, which is your know, valuation metric. So maybe you can compare that to like an earnings yield in the, in the stock market, uh, but although it's not you know, really the same thing at all but uh, you said now it's in the 10 to 15 percent so i just want to explain for the audience that's not because the rents have gone up so much that's because the denominator the actual value has gone down right 
Yes. Yeah. Yes. A lot of these buildings are trading have you know have you know relatively higher vacancies, maybe in the 20 percent. They have you know WALT, which is weighted average lease term. That's a big term that's you know people look at what's your average, look at your leases, when's your roll exposure, and it's so murky on knowing what you, how you see demand for office that you you know do you put you know you're absorbing. 10,000 square feet next year, or you put in zero for the next two years or 100,000 or you lose a tenant. So all those are playing into it. So all these forecasts, you know, our, we use a you know software called Argus and that's our industry mm-hmm. standard for lease office. And, you know, you've got tons of variables in there. And it's so interesting to see the debates with lenders and investors on what people believe is going to happen. I'm just saying the guys on the front line, I, I, I'm not going to even use pessimistic. I think your, you know, your comment's a good one about being realistic. Mm-hmm. It's just, you know, when do you start feeling that pain? And there's, there's this, it's just so slow. It's like, you know, the first you know, 10 minutes you took, you took the whole population of the Titanic when, when they hit the iceberg, you, there's some guys who knew within 15 minutes, you know, the ship and the structure goes, yeah, we're doomed. You know, this ain't good. And the other people yeah. are moving, for, ah, you know, the plain music. So I, real estate has that dynamic and interesting comment. It's like, there's so much non, you know, the, the transparency, the mystery behind it. It's a huge asset class. That's what makes it very intriguing. That's what I found interesting to it. But now there's been more transparency, but still, you know, people are, you know, they got to make, there's some really a lot of tough decisions and, you know, we're, we're talking to national banks, regional banks and, and community banks. They're all behaving differently. We got three debt funds that in New York, they're behaving differently. It's amazing. They get their book. We got our book, but you know. Sorry. Th- so all the banks who are lending to to, to you to to finance uh, your your projects, and then the three debt funds, they're also uh, lenders. So bank bank lenders and non bank lenders. You're talking to them. Correct. That's right. And and how they're behaving, and you know, we've had some of the national banks. We've gone to them and said, "Listen, we think this is going to be rough. You know, let's let's see. You know, let's lower the rate to five percent. Go from nine to five, and maybe cruise some." If, if the property cash flows there, let's roll the money back in and let's be super selective on uh, the next tenant we land, uh, retaining tenants, you know, spending money on the property through function or capex. Let's play. If you want to ride it out, because right now I'm getting BOVs, broker opinion of values, the brokerage community, they're all over the place. I got three lenders were taking properties to market and we got one in Tampa that was probably worth about 40 million, 170,000 square feet in Tampa. The, the loan amount is 21. It's with a debt fund. We got offers at 11 million. The buyer that did it, we went under contract, fell out after two weeks. They got scared. I mean, it's a bunch of cowboys buying the building and they, they're they willing to take the hit. Maybe a good move because that property may be worth half in two years. Suburban is tough, Jack. It's really tough right now because it doesn't have the amenities, doesn't have the high walk scores. You know, it doesn't have the cool, funky look to it. And people are like, eh, you know, it's just boring. You know, I need something cool and unique and something that's provocative and an ethos that really is compelling to attract tenants back to the office. So that's that's a challenge in itself. I want to talk about, you know, duration. You said you talked about waltz, weighted average lease term. I think that's really important. So, you know, in the bond world, you can invest in a bond for one day and you get very short-term interest rate, or you can buy a bond for 30 years or you know, an Austrian 100-year bond. And if you lock in a long-term rate at a low rate, that's bad, and the interest rates go up. If you lock it up at a high rate, interest rates go down, that's really good. I think uh, maybe a similar analogy can be in the real estate world where in this bull market of, of real estate, you know, pretty much a lot of your career, 
is it was it a good thing to have short-term leases because then you can always roll it up i got a new tenant up i'm increasing the rent i'm increasing the rent uh and oh i have a 30-year uh uh, lease that kind of is not great because i'm missing out on this huge you know three decade bull run in in real estate but now is it is it the opposite where you you would want to have a long-term lease you'd want to have a a 100-year lease locked in at at 2019 uh rent levels because rents are coming down also are rents coming down it's tough to see you know looking at the Real estate investment trusts—they're not going down. Some are. It's tough to say, but are our rents going down? I mean, they're definitely the rate of increase has definitely gone down, right? A few things. One is historically that our the office sector is, is really anchored on long-term leases, 10, 15, 20-year leases. During depends if you feel like you have some leverage where you do shorter-term leases, less transaction costs because you can capture the upside. That's a rare phenomenon. I've seen some of that because it's been a demand tenants want a little more flexibility there. But I, I also, you know, I think that part of the, the challenge is you got all those moving parts on the lease term. And then what was your second question? Uh, the, the, the lease term and then our rents going down. Okay. So what we've done, you know, what we've done really well is to try to prop up the face rates. I'm going to call it propping up. So the way this was done was give a tenant extra tenant improvement dollars, keep the rate higher give extra free rent to keep the rates higher because by keeping the face rate going this way, you had a chance of like proving that there was growth in the market and like positive. And that's, that's a trick of the trade. People are doing that for years, but now it's gotten pretty much out of bounds on this. And now because of the inventory and tenant reps now are going, they're beating the crap out of landlords right now. They're going and going, listen, I can go to 15 different buildings and I can get all kinds of incentives. And by the way, your rate, you start going this way. I'm starting to see some of this. We're experiencing it on, on on retention and then RFPs from new tenants. So I think that is the one. That's kind of like the the last you know hammer or uh, whatever they're saying is to drop. That is going to really impact where you see the, the turnover uh, rents coming down, and that's going to take some time. So you know you know one read here public rate is high was properties. Um, you know. If you look at their inventory, 96 properties, 75 of those properties, mostly suburban, were built, you know, probably 15, 20 years ago. They're in the crosshairs. I don't, I'm not saying they're going to zero. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying they've gone from 51 down to 17. And I know they're in the market doing things. And it's just, it's a tough for some of these REITs because I starting to see, bet your point is you're going to start seeing, I believe you're going to start seeing now the dip where things rents are coming down and CoStar's data is showing forecasts where you 10, 15% drops in some markets of rates. And we haven't seen that for years because we've been really good at propping rates up that now we can't, it's going to collapse. That, it's just, there's too much pressure there, in my opinion. Yeah, it's so uh, refreshing and, and fascinating to hear you say propping rates up. You know, looking through the, some real estate investment data on offices, I haven't looked into that one. I, I, I will, but the, the rents, had either stayed the same or gone up marginally, and then maybe vacancy went down a little bit, but and that totally did not match, you know, the extreme bearish headlines in the Wall Street Journal or the Real Deal. And you're saying they're they're not bearish enough, which is which is also fascinating. You're saying it's kind of like, oh, you're oh, buy the sixty thousand dollar car, and it's it's worth sixty thousand dollars, but we're going to give you a you know a, a huge a huge deal. And but in this case, you know, we'll also give you a you know a free a free engine, and we'll you know in the in the office equivalent, basically 
we'll give you all these improvements and deals, but the face value of the rent is going to be the same. But is the face value marginally different from the straight line rent of how is of how much rent you actually receive? Or is, well, or is, is, just, the, is the sort of propping up different from the rent you receive? It's, oh, the, the rent we're receiving, the face value, we are receiving that rent. We're just also doing very generous things for our tenants as well. So, so this is where this is good. We're dividing, we're slicing up the conversation here a bit. From the entrepreneur kind of private equity space, you know, some of these things where you want to keep face raise growing, so you're going to prop it up and use these strategies. It, it's not unusual. It's not a mystery. You're given a lot of free rent and, and like TI, but the net effective rent, when you run it on a straight line back, it's going, it's going this way, right? The REITs now are about FFO, right? So they're, it's mm-hmm. cash flow. They're not going to try to get maybe the rates up as much. They're going to spend dollars where they can. But I, I, to me is if I was going to study REITs, I'd say, okay, let's talk about term and, and what's the transaction cost? Where are they going? And most Leases have built-in escalators, of, you know, two and a half, three percent. So you're going to see stuff go up. My point is, market rents, I think now are going to start going down. So if the market rent, and that's really loaded too, because you have Class A and you got all kinds of slices of Class A, you get Class B space, you get Class C space. So you can cut and slice to make it look like the market's doing great, and it's really not, and vice versa. It's all the stuff we talk about when you get under the hood. So my point is, you know, if if let's just say if you could you know, try to simplify it. You, you have class A office rates in a, in a, in a submarket of Nashville and they were 28, you know, or the, is 28 going to 26 or 25 in the next three, three years. I'd make an argument that there's plenty of submarkets going that direction. And I don't see structurally things change because if you got, you know, if, if, and this is not unique to me, if you got a base case where you have a billion to billion and a half square feet, that may be obsolete. I'm not sure what that drag looks like. And the cap rates, if they go more to a sustained level to higher because of the uncertainty, takes it takes years for some of these trends to play out, as you know. I mean, the, the mall stuff's been in. You know, guys, you can make money. There's guys, I'm reading stuff in the Wall Street Journal, but these guys are buying malls at, you know, 10 cents on the dollar, and they're trying to throw all kinds of, and they're doing, selling out parcels. There's ways to, real estate allows you a lot of different levers to pull to make some money. So rents are, rents are going down. You're pretty pessimistic. How does that how does this impact your outlook on, on returns? And I should say earlier when you said you think there's a lot of opportunity, on the one hand, that sounds like that might conflict with your pessimistic, realistic outlook, but it really is two sides of the same coin, right? Because if you think things are going to get really bad, if you're a well-capitalized player who can take advantage of things, like if, you're, if you can buy stocks in March of 2009, you're going to do pretty well at the, at the end of the day, right? So I guess what, what is your sort of your your outlook on, on how this impacts returns now or is the entire is your entire office world do you think values are much too high relative to what they're actually worth and so you know stated returns over the next few months or years i don't know is are going to be negative but then that'll be a great great fantastic opportunity to buy so this is the provocative conversation right because tons of tension in all that right so you're, you're trying to play this out on two sides. One is we we have a portfolio. We we believe you know it's materially lower than most of the BOVs and appraisals are coming in at. Uh, but it's not a great time to be selling. Like I wouldn't be selling right now unless it's forced. Like a lender wants out, and you know we would try to restructure. And our investors, listen, our investors are pretty savvy, and most of them, if they're being honest. I mean, we were we were probably fifty eight percent leveraged. 
uh, 56 to 58% leverage before the downturn. And we've got deals right now that the, you know, the lender and the Mez are, are impaired and, and some materially impaired. It's gotten that bad. Now, you know, we're not class A office guys. We are kind of B guys taking it to B plus and doing some really cool creative office product. So those are going to take a little bit more of a hit because your rent roll and, and the tenant base, but that's kind of like middle America. That's where a lot of your companies come from. So there's that side to it. So we think there, you know, if we can't work a deal with the lender and we like the asset, maybe we can, I made an offer on a deal recently, you know, the debt was 24 million. And I made a DPO offer at 9 million. The lender said, mm, we get it. We actually think you're our best buyer. So it's a national bank. We don't know if we want to take the hit not yet or not, but let's take it to market to see what the market says and maybe we'll give you a shot. At Wait, 24 million to 9 million. That was the, that was the value of the building or that was the value of the loan? That was the, the loan was 24 million and the offer on the loan, which is basically we're saying the offer of the building is worth, you know, eight or 9 million bucks. Now we would rep that's a repurposing building to mix use SDRs, funky, like cigar, bourbon bar on the top, open up the, because when you do this, you have now parking space, you have land available in the parking, you can reclaim. We do like box car retail, drop a brewery in really kind of make it unique and different do some retail on the top and do some what I'm calling co-working space 2.0, because we have WeWork experience, which that was a fascinating experience in itself. But let me go back to where I think the opportunity is. Where we're spending, we call the really four pillars in, in office. We're doubling down in office in this context. We're, we've got about 100 buildings in the Southeast we're tracking with very inefficient floor plates for office, but actually work well for either uh, converting to hospitality or residential. So we take a tower and, and make it mixed use. We're not in the camp that, for these guys converting to off uh, to multifamily, 100% multifamily, you got to get the building to empty out. You got all these rents in there. You got these buildings that that have you know 20% vacancy, and they have a tenant in there for another three years. And how do you get them out? And you got one at 50%. And you know you're not doing new leasing, but they're they're not empty buildings. So our model is more to look at repurposing floors and turn it to mixed use. Won't be easy. It's a lot of work. I think it could be tremendous opportunities, but you want high walk scores to distress buyer, uh, distress owners and lenders, and then really inefficient floor plans allows you to do really stuff, unique stuff for hospitality and residential. Because your your problem, most of these buildings are going to be at least half to half, um, 50% residential. We like that model. We have creative single story office that's taking anything single story and kind of funk it out, you know, like the old warehouse uh, product flex space. You could take an old retail space. You take an industrial space, you know, drop, as I said, you just drop in enough amenities to make it unique. It's direct access, you know, lobbies, you don't have elevators. So we, we like that. And then scraping buildings we talked about earlier and then corporate campuses. We think that's unique. That feels like a pretty material upside, to, at least to guys like us. And then we're, we're, we're looking at being aggressive into you know, third-party management for receivers. We think a lot of properties are going back to banks. We think banks are completely overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. I've tried to get the keys back and the bank's like, I, I don't want it. I do not want it. Let's work a deal. The deal terms aren't great, Jack. But no. aren't legally, uh, if it's non-recourse debt, which, which may not be, I mean, that's an advantage of real estate investors who borrow against the bank. Like if I, you know, borrow uh, money to buy stocks, and the stocks decline by more than the value of my loan. Hopefully, the broker will you know do a margin call and, and get me out. But if they don't, like I owe the the bank money. Whereas in the real estate business, correct me if I'm wrong, a lot of these deals are done on non recourse debt. So if you borrow, you know, if you buy a building for a hundred million dollars, 
and you borrow $60 million and the value of the building goes to 40 million. So the equity is worth negative 20 million. You don't take that $20 million loss. You just say, hey, the bank, here are my keys, right? But you're saying in this case, the bank doesn't want to take the keys. Don't they have to? Well, in this context, they don't want the keys back. They'd rather work a deal with you and you, you have to, this is very, you know, you got to be careful because the, the, the lender, you know, doesn't have the staff or the team to probably take over a bunch of office properties. So they have to go to the sponsor. In my experience, a lot of sponsors are pretty sharky. You know, they, they, you know, they, they love to get the property back. So they work a relationship with the sponsor to, to manage the property. And that's not necessarily great either because you got the guy who probably wants to buy the debt back at some point for cheap. And if people are being honest, that's in the cards. Not saying there's guardrails along those, but you just don't have a lot of, I feel like there's a dearth of like real, like the, I grew up at when they were like, these guys were in the real estate business. They, they drank, slept, they, they operate real estate. I've also enjoyed the fact that we've now taken away, we've taken, you know, we've, we've been very creative with our financial structures. You got a lot of guys in the space that are not really real estate guys. They're just finance guys mm-hmm. that are arbitraging in space. And there's more than not. And just guys who know how to operate real estate. I think it's, yeah, it's not as many people around like they used to be. And, you know, people don't like to roll up their sleeves. It's a lot of hard work. They're asset allocators. They're saying, I'm actually, I'm taking it out of my hedge fund sleeve and I'm putting it into the real estate sleeve. And they have a, a you know, a lot of quantitative models probably have pretty nice suits, but they don't know how to talk to tenants. They don't know how it actually, the game actually works. Yeah. It's the grind. It's the salt mines, right? Yeah. So, so you, you know, I think there's, there's opportunity there. So these lenders that don't want to back the end up, you know, that are not recourse, Jack, you're right. Most, a lot of these are not recourse debt, but there's, there's a lot of community banks and regional banks that double down, triple down in real estate in the last two or three years, because some of the big boys weren't filling that gap and they jumped in. I think if you look at those, you know, what do we have? 4,600 banks in the U.S. It's going to be very interesting with the FDIC and OCC and the Fed's doing right now and negotiating. You know, they can't have any more SVV, Signature Bank. I mean, that was it. That's duration challenges, stuff like that. But there's a lot of small banks who are loaded up with real estate or having problems right now. And I'm and I'm I'm negotiating with these lenders right now. I've got deals currently that I'm renegotiating. It's interesting what they're doing to try to get through this downturn. And you know, I just think. It's going to be fascinating, you know, the opportunities, we're just very, that's where I am bullish, Jack. I am very bullish about where it's going, uh, but it's going to take time to get there. I think you're absolutely right that the banks, their issues have been mark to market losses. Well, they haven't taken the losses, but the losses exist on their bond portfolios and then depositors getting freaked out and there being a bank run on paper. The commercial real estate, if you just are a, if you're a bank analyst and you're looking at commercial real estate loans, it actually looks good. But you know, you're on the you're on the front lines. There's some losses on the front lines, but those losses have not been reported back to to headquarters. Uh, that's so right. The, the official statistics that the general is looking at look good. But yes. uh, there's so, so but, all that communication. So it's being real and you get so you gotta ask the right questions to get to the truth, right? So back to your comment about uh product, right? Supply. Since 2020, there's 136 million brand new office space that's built in this country since 2020. That product, if built well, maybe it's got some ESG features to it, green features, clean air. So it's, yeah, maybe the newer stuff is cleaner. That should do relatively well. You're going to try to tenant base. I want to be there. So what's fascinating to me is you got that. And then right now it's about, I don't know, anywhere from, it depends on the data source between another, like currently going on less than 50 million of new office space being built out of 5 billion. Well, if you have a flight to quality in this more creative product, 
let's say you and I are sitting there going, okay, wait a sec. We've had about four and a half billion of demand. Maybe that demand goes to two and a half billion. You know, I don't know where it ends up in the next three and five years, but let's say that that new demand, most of it wants something new, cool and funky. And the supply side on that is only, maybe it's a half a billion square feet, but the demand's a billion or a billion and a half. So there could, there's a whole opportunity with this, the market shift that's going to leave behind quite a bit of real estate. Yeah, Real Deal talks about it. Connect CRE talks about it. All these groups talk about the groups that are kind of, this is like you know the obsolete product that you got to know what you're shifting to. So that's where I'm bullish. Just newer product seems to have the fundamentals where people want to go because office is not going away. That's where people want to go. But all this other stuff that, you know, what's that going to be? I'm more, I'm interested. I think that's really interesting, the story where they're going. I'm interested in what's left over because I think that's stuff you can really, I think you'd have a lot of institutions bailing out on the cheap. You got to be back to rolling up your sleeves. You got to have the team to execute, to repurpose and uh, restructure or, you know, scrape or redevelop or mix use all this product over here that in my world, that's like a wealth creation that we haven't seen in a long time because it's the destruction of a space going this way and leaving all this product behind that's just sitting in locations that could be, if you can figure it out, crack that code. I don't know. I'm, I'm very, that's where I think there's tremendous upside. Hey everyone, we're about to get back in the action, but before we do, let me give you a lowdown on what's been brewing at Blockworks. Come March next year in the heart of London, we're bringing together hundreds of the world's heavyweight asset managers. I'm talking about the big hitters, fund managers, allocators, payment providers, and the major high-frequency traders. They'll all be converging at Digital Asset Summit London, the mother of all digitally focused conferences in the institutional space. If you're curious about what the big money is up to in the digital asset scene, this is the event for you. We're diving deep into the intersection of macroeconomics and crypto, dissecting where we're at at the market cycle, and we'll be getting into the nitty gritty of real world assets. So think stable coins and on-chain treasuries. It's all in the mix. I'm going to be there and so are the forward guide superstars. Michael Howell is going to be there. There's a rumor that Joseph Wang is going to be there. I don't know who started that rumor, but people are saying that. We're also getting into the minds of allocators, so you get a front row seat to what the big crypto money managers are cooking up these days. And because you're a dedicated Forward Guidance listener, here's an exclusive treat. Use code FG20 to get 20% off. Just hit that link at the end of this episode, so gear up, because I'm looking forward to seeing you in sunny London town come March. Thanks, let's get back to the interview. And, and so when you look at like the publicly traded REITs, do you think that the impairments have been fully realized and if in a, you know those prices and I know it's 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 different REITs different properties of, of course but of course you know private REITs private investments maybe they haven't taken those losses and so their on paper returns still appear very good but they they have to take those losses I mean how do you think that's going to impact like what do you think the next year is going to look like for private real estate investors So it's issue question right cuz all these REITs have been beaten up I think they had like a a bounce here recently some of the office reads like 10 or 12 percent but i was in they're still at 17 i think i mean if they were at 51 you know most of those guys have 40 percent leverage 35 40 percent leverage so i'm like you know some of them you know it's retail investing so interesting to me because it can get way ahead of it and behind it, it's going to react differently than we we're going to be slower in the private space but i think we can kind of see where the value is going but I don't know, Jack, it's an interesting question. I feel like a lot of them have been beaten up. I, I haven't been following some of the bigger REITs that closely, Bernado and I guess, you know, Boston Property, some of those, but they're all, you know, pretty beaten up. I mean, I, you know, the question I have is, do you have a portfolio even at 
you know, you know, that low leverage that, you know, the rates just climb so high and you start losing so much erosion on your revenue and your yield, you know, your dividends have been cut. I mean, you know, they, they got some room to restructure there. I just don't know how that, and it's so slow moving. Like, mm-hmm. you know, people forget about you after a year or two and they figure a way to restructure stuff. The real estate investment trusts, I have actually been fairly impressed in one aspect of their handling their interest expense. They really did hedge a lot of it out and, you know, convert a lot of floating rate debt to fixed debt. So their their interest expense is kind of capped and they have muted the impact of these of the you know the Fed's much higher interest rate expense. How do private investors in the real estate business handle that huge interest expense? I mean, is it a is it a shock of yeah, the 10-year went from uh, you know, uh, 2% to 5%. And so the loan went from 4% to you know, 7%. Is, is, is all of that realized or is some of it more fixed rate debt or, or is, there, is there also hedging in the private real estate space? Because again, you know, as someone who's not in the industry, I can look at REITs and discover this, but the private industry, I kind of, it's, you know, I, I don't know, it's very opaque. So, so, so yes. So the short answer is yes, yes, yes. Long answer, it's complicated. There's a lot of like, even I look at our portfolio, you know, $750 million in debt when the you know rates start climbing. We've moved some of those properties since then. We had some of them hedged. We had rate caps in place. Not long. Some were for a year, some were two years. Sometimes usually the duration of the first, you know, what first three years of the loan. Some of the smaller banks, we had no hedges in place. But we, you know, we went from LIBOR to SOFR and, you know, so it was priced off that, you know, 150 bips on, you know, 30 day, 90 day LIBOR at the time. But some of those have gone up, Jack, 3X, you know, and that's where we've gone to lenders who try to, like I had one lender, I was at nine and a half percent at community bank. And I went to him, I said, listen, I'm looking for a 12 month forbearance so we can create cash flow. They didn't like that, but I, you, know, you gotta make the hard ask. Tough. We yeah. ended up settling at 6%. I owe, they gave me a second on the property with, additional dollars to cover the debt service for 18 months and I can use the cash flow the way I need it. I'm like, oh, okay. Interesting. It's an amazing deal. So as interest rates went up, your loan went down in yield. You you paid less. That's a good deal. Yes. They were nine and a half and they were six and they said, we'll take six. It's not great. But so so I look at these banks that are getting pressures from depositors. They got, you know, these, you know, treasuries or you know, whatever they bought, you know, two or three years ago at you know, 1% yield or half percent yield, you got real estate. I don't know. You tell me, I mean, how's the banking industry going to play out in the next two, you know, year or two, especially if a little bit of a lag, the rates stay higher yet. I, I, I don't know. What are your thoughts? Well, I'm much more interested in your thoughts than, than my thoughts, but I think that banks are saying, okay, interest rates went up and we're a little bit out of this phase because maybe interest rates are going to start going down. I mean, you know, the feds Waller, you know, Powell's trusted deputy, said that basically no more hikes, the pause will be extended until early 2024. And the market is now pricing, I think, you know, exceptionally slim chances of, of more hikes and very, very likely that cuts are on the way as early as next year. So I think we're out of the world of maybe six months ago of banks now thinking about net interest margins and the way that I want to talk about them. But as interest rates were rising, banks say, okay, these fixed assets uh, these fixed rate loans, I, I made it. Why did I make these mortgage at 3%? That's going to be is, you know, the family is going to be there for 30 years. What did I'm doing? Why did I buy all these, uh, you know, mortgage backed securities at fixed rates and, and treasuries and on the mortgage industry? 
you know, like, like, like people in the real estate industry, you know, homeowners, they have the optionality, they can stay in the house uh, as long as they want, uh, which they will do as interest rates rise up. Um, but if interest rates go down, they're going to prepay uh, a ton. And so that banks are trying to short that optionality. So that, the fixed assets, we have tons of issues. But thank God we have our floating rate loans. You know, as interest rates go up, we're going to be making more money. So our net interest margins will expand. They're not, they're shrinking. But okay, we have these floating rate assets to protect our net interest margins. And now here you are saying, <laughs> real estate developers who, who are borrowing the money are saying, actually, cut my interest rate or I'm going to give you the keys back. So yeah, it sounds like a problem. Yeah. And depositors, you know, on top of that are getting higher yields. And I think the Fed is, yeah, I, I think FDN, I think they're doing some really interesting stuff behind the scenes. They're either, you know, orchestrating mergers, you know, M&A stuff. I mean, they got it because you get that stuff out in the headlines. Listen, there's so much psychology to what we're talking about. And if you get people in the, in the sentiment going the wrong way or behaviors shifting on you rapidly, I think we've gotten so complicated as a, as a business community and how we structure financing and all the derivatives. You got like, to keep your head on a swivel even more today with all the different variables. And you know, it's just gotten, it's gotten intriguing, but a little more, it's gotten complicated too. So before we talked mostly about office, you said you also have concerns about multifamily or apartment buildings. Tell me about that because you know, there are people who say, yeah, oh yeah, office has got tons of problems, but multifamily is fine. Like for example, I know, uh, well, whatever, you know, the Blackstone Real Estate Investment Trust, I think they say, we don't own a lot of office. Office is only a small, tiny fraction, but they, they own a lot of apartment buildings. They own a lot of other stuff. And so is it the issues just located to commercial, just to office, or is it commercial real estate broadly and apartment buildings? Because I'll say a lot of the banks, you know, they say, oh, office loans are only 15% of our commercial real estate loans, and they're not a, a huge part. So yeah, office is you know, only uh, only one part of the giant commercial real estate uh, uh, sector. What do you think of the overall sector, but particularly multifamily apartment buildings, which earlier in the conversation, you said you had some concerns about? Yeah, it's interesting, right? Because the sector's had an extraordinary run. You know, your newer, newer product has done extremely well in the context of guys, probably, you know, merchant guys, you know, REITs have probably, you know, certainly done well. I think that the the, the, the deeper concern I have is, like industrial multifamilies, but was priced for perfection. Like literally guys would go in there, buy a property. You know, maybe it's a three yield. They fix it up, pump a bunch of money in, and then they think they're going to flip it out at a four and a half yield. And I'm like, there's a lot of B and C apartments out there. There's a lot of aggressive folks going after that space, especially in the last two years. And if you look at it, you know, just the debt, you know, office is a slice, but multifamily is a bigger slice of the debt in the U.S., and I just, with costs, you know, to run these properties gone up, you know, I know we're more disinflation now, but, you know, the inflation, the surge there, I think that, you know, the debate's always been, there's been more need for housing, but I think that you've got some operators in the space that were probably not as skilled and, and not as experienced and their costs, there's been probably a number of costs overruns. And then they look at their interest rates, you know, tripling or doubling if they don't caps in place. And they're going, well, wait a sec. I was hoping to get out of four and a half cap and now it's a six cap. I do the math on that because you, you know, when you go from a, when you go from a, you know, a, a nine cap to 10 cap is not as punitive going than going from a three to a four. It's mm -hmm. crazy. So those that's when you price it for perfection and you have a, some glitches here and there, it flips it hard the other way. I think yeah. that is people aren't talking about that much, you know, in my space. I'm hearing more chatter, but it, it, I'm seeing data. Well, 
I can't remember. I thought I saw something that, you know, distress office was leading, but, you know, multifamily was catching up pretty materially. Right. So fascinating you say that about going from nine to 10, much less painful than three to four. It's the exact same thing in the bond world. You know, if you bought a 30 a, year bond yielding 10% and interest rates went to 11%, you're fine. I mean, you're getting 10%. I mean, that you're, that the yearly coupon of 10% maybe can, can even is more than that entire thing. So it's not a ton of risk, but going from, you know, buying bonds at negative rates and now yields go up to 4%, that hurts. So, okay. So multifamily, it's, it's, it's tough because the official data, I mean, the most lagging of all and in the inflation data, you know, shelter that goes into CPI in terms of rent, rents are no longer being raised at, you know, 20% as they were in, in 2021, right? And, and what are you seeing in the, in the fundamentals of that space? And also, can you talk about the, the pipeline that's coming on? Because I know a lot of new multifamily has been built over the past few years. It feels like some markets are getting hit with some softening. I mean, rents have been high for so long. I think your newer product will certainly do, do well. We la- I'm laughing about it because we've had land with a lot of our office building that we, we call crotch land, like crotch space. Like you, you, it was always the, hey, we're going to sell you this asset and he's got additional land. You can build the next tower, office tower. No one ever did it, but yeah. we always try to say the value. Well, it's interesting. I think we've sold 10 parcels uh, in the last three years to multifamily developers mm. on you know building right next to our office building. And it's been interesting to see. And I've talked to those guys quite a bit. I'm not as well versed on what's up to speed now. I just what I've read and heard, but you know, I'm not sure where rates are going to go on that. I've just heard more on the on the the space that people were that a lot of money went into were, you know, when they were reading, you know, pricing pressure, you know, cap rates compression that this kind of this older product had a great opportunity to do some facelifts. I think that area is I've heard has turned sideways. I just read a report from Arbor. Realty, I think they do their debt group. And, you know, I looked at all the multifamily they've done over the last three years and I'm like reading stories. I'm like, I, it just, it doesn't look good for some of that stuff. So I, I don't know the ultimate impact. I just know real estate is so interesting how it behaves. You know, you, it's when I grew up into it, the first, you know, SNL crisis was more the, you know, the, the cause, you know, back in the late eighties, then you had the tech wreck, and then the off, you know, it's, it's some, it's some, part of the sector that's kind of dragging everybody down. You know, it was the housing sector and the, and the great financial crisis. Now it's office, but it has all this collateral damage and apartments feel like they're close to it. Uh, you know, industrial with Amazon pulling back. I heard the big, larger boxes may have some big challenges. The micro boxes, the last mile stuff should perform. And now I've heard like retail coming back, the strip center retail, which was out of favor for a number of years. So all these guys impact things differently, but multifamily to me intrigues me because I think there's a lot of money pumped in the space. And it's like I said earlier, price perfection, and there's not much, you know, it doesn't take much movement to flip that upside down. Right. And then tell me about experiential hospitality. Earlier, you said the office and the hospitality world are merging. When I hear hospitality, I think hotels, maybe Airbnb, but how do you define experiential hospitality and why are you excited about it? So the trend we've seen uh, more and more in office is how do you create an environment that, you know, gets people expect the office, for example, you know, we're kicking around like putting in a climbing wall in the lobby. We got a generation, millennials, Gen Z, certain alphas coming up that this is cool. That's funky. It's not like my dad's office or, you know, and then you've got a microbrewery tea coffee shop there in the lobby that's really tricked out, intriguing. You have this these provocative, really intriguing speakers that come in at 4.30. 
And then you have a concierge service that you need anything done. We'll send it out and pick it up for you while you're at the office. You, you know, just there's, there's a lot of discussion around that, you know, you know, the, the traditional office was, Oh, have the, have the cafe, have the, uh, work at the fitness facility and then, you know, have a conference area. I mean, that's just like, uh, there's nothing, there's no zing to that. There's nothing compelling to it. There's nothing exciting to it. So, and would that also, would that be called class A? We've been talking about class A, B, C. Is it just a distinction of, of how many stories, how many square footage in the building? Or is it, is it, is it, is, is class A or class B? Is it a feeling? <laughs> it's more the art than the science. Yeah. You know, if it, if it, it, well, but, so one of the, probably the number one criteria is when it was built, right? Okay. You know, so anything built new, usually probably there's a lot of the good stuff in it, you know, and then it just kind of deteriorates over time. Um, what about like yeah, the so best it, building ever that was built in 1980? What would that be? That would be likely a B, maybe close to a C. Really? But, you know, you can take some of these old buildings and funk them out and make a really unique kind of cool, maybe it's in a great location. You know, you do something to the parking lot, activate the parking lot. You what what I think about hospitality and, and office, you know, you know, even the lounge here, like the lobby areas, you know, they now have a fireplace and the lodge there's they got the TV. It almost feels like a hotel lobby. You know, you got fire pits out back, you know, we've got some of that stuff, you know, just so like hotels have fire pits, you know, in the evening, you know, and I haven't seen one put a pull in yet for an office building, but it's just I think we we're in a now in a in, in a, a kind of a mindset where Traditionally, we put these things in kind of boxes and now they're colliding. And now to me, it's about, okay, Jack, what's our experience need to be? We, we're, we have 24 hours. We're either in our home, we're in a coffee shop, we're in the office. We want to engage with people. I can now do work anywhere in the world. Technology is out. So it's really where you spend your time and how do you optimize revenue in that, in that space? And that's mm-hmm. what I challenge the, the, you know, in the opportunity that the real estate industry is going to go through on how do I optimize my revenue when that person's there? What are they paying for it or not? And, you know, Adam Newman tried to do with co-working, you know, we work and there's some, there's some really interesting stuff there, but you could see where the train wreck was. But on the other side, it was probably brilliant. There's some stuff that he did really, really well. When I, I, th- I thought of Adam, Adam Newman. So you're saying that there were some on the creating experiences and de- handling, te- creating experiences and creating buildings that tenants will, will find value in and enjoy. He had a lot of ideas, but on the financial side, there were a lot of issues, and I think it's you know, work has gone bankrupt. Are they a model? We talked about weighted average lease terms. Let's see, they were bar- they were they were entering into leases of very long term leases, so they were borrowing long and they were lending short to firms. And if the price of real estate goes down, square footage, that's not a good business model to be in. And by the way, they never made money. They they I think they lost you know billions and billions of dollars before. Um, of COVID and and working from home be, became a thing, but yeah, what lessons do you do you learn from from their fall? And you said you had a, a few experiences with them. I mean, they were they were a big player in the space. Yes, and I think that you hit some important points about Adam Newman. He had some really you know clever ideas, interesting ideas. You know, it's all implementation of those are always the challenging part, and then making it profitable. So if we become a culture that's you know, values, flexibility. Um, office was a tough one, you know, for many years because people wanted long-term leases. Well, he said, well, let's not do that. Let's go have flexibility, short terms. We'll make it really cool. We'll fuck it out. Super engaging. 
It was exciting. It was, it was good stuff. And would someone pay a premium for that? I do believe in that. I believe that, you know, because you look at op- occupancy costs historically, you know, five, seven percent of cost. You know, for someone had the well, right total firm's revenue of occupancy, what they pay for for real estate in, in renting out an office, that's five to seven percent of their total cost expenses. or their total revenue. Yeah, so, r- yeah, yeah, roughly on that. So so to me, I'm like, well, you know, if we're, you know, HR is now leading the cause. We want people, you know, employee engagement's important. You want productivity up. Why wouldn't you want to have an environment that allows that to be fostered and grow at the, at, at, you know, whatever, you know, at, at a cost that you believe you're going to get it back on the other side? Well, you know, the old days, like, here's your office. You got this and the lighting wasn't great. The air was okay. You know, the, you know, you know, the culture was like the office, not really, but that was a great show, but it's just, you yeah, know, yeah. it's just, it's just different. So if you kind of break that mold and go, now you can have something like Adam was offering that's really unique and you're going to pay a little bit of a premium or maybe that's not a little premium, you know, go from 5% to 10%, you know, if you can go from five or 7% to 10 to 15% and you get what you want and it's really cool and you have flexibility, maybe someone will pay 20% for that. So that's where people, it's an arbitrage, right? So if you can lock in long-term at low rates and you can go sell the product back in little pieces and get a premium for it, it's not that unusual model. I mean, people have done, you know, figured it out. I mean, Airbnb, you know, I mean, they're just renting up. It's other people's homes and, you know, people are, you know, there's, to me, it's just very intensive. You gotta be very intentional. You gotta have a program. You gotta, you can't be zigzagging all the place. And you have an offering that allows people an environment that they really feel they're going to thrive in and then give them the flexibility. Like, Jack, you know, we're going to downsize, you know, I don't have to go through a painful restructuring with you. I'm just going to take, I don't need seven offices. I need five. Great. We'll mm-hmm. tear it up. We'll, we'll let you go take that. But guess what? You're, you're paying, a, you're probably paying double what you'd pay in an office deal if you had the whole place yourself and you sublet the space out. Well, I don't want that hassle. You know, I, I want what I want. Pro, yeah. Probably paying at a premium per square footage, maybe. But they're renting out a small amount of square footage, such a small amount that you couldn't get anywhere else. Like I think I have worked at a not we work, but a co-working space, and there were firms there that never would you know would have really rented a maybe I mean they would have rented the smallest possible unit. So it's it's you know having like twenty five companies on a single floor and they all are drinking tea together and you know you're all working around. That's a good environment and it can be a good business model. And it's interesting to hear you say some positive things about it. I think it was a you know, I've looked at it a little bit, don't know that much about it, but it, it it was very heavily influenced by the venture capital boom and it never really tried to make money. It just tried to grow as, as fast as possible. And I think the anecdote I remember is uh, Mayoshi's son, founder of SoftBank, who invested in WeWork, was like, Adam, you lost $3 billion this year. Next year, can we make it four? Because <laughs> they wanted to grow as quick as possible. And in real estate, it's about making money. And, and this, this concept of, I'm going to grow as fast as possible so I lose more money. Maybe you know it doesn't make a lot of sense to the people who've been in the, the salt mines uh, such as yourself, but yeah, venture capital and real estate is a, it's a strange mixture. Yeah, I mean Sam Zell made a comment said something like, "Yeah, WeWork's biggest competition is is Starbucks and an outlet." Recently, I was in Midtown, and everyone, I have so many people were at this you know bar, and everyone was wearing their you know, relatively formal business outfits, and I was just thinking like these new, I think New York City you know, these office buildings, they're going to be, they're going to be just fine because people are going to work. And so many of those firms are in finance or law where you want, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're a lawyer and you're charging someone like a ridiculous amount per hour, you're going to want to take, when they meet them, you're going to want to meet them in person. You're going to want to, you know, be wearing a nice outfit and, you know, shake their hand, look them in the eye and take them to a nice office building. So I think like that part of the market, just my own, you know, uninformed 
speculation might be fine in New York. I mean, in in New York, and I'm biased because I'm in New York. Do you agree that sort of the uh, class AAA, it, you know, in in New York will be fine? Again, I don't know about San Francisco. Say people in San Francisco. I mean, it's tech. They're they're not about meeting people in in person. Uh, so maybe that's that's different. But I just feel like I don't know. I feel like in New York, maybe the headlines are are uh, too bearish. But in other parts, you're right that they're too not bearish enough. There's conversation trophy to trash kind of conversation of what's really trash in the office sector and what's trophy. And that's getting redefined. So absolutely, the, the professional side, bringing, you know, the cities, there, there's going to be, the question to my, my mind is going, if you take New York or you take Boston or, you know, Philadelphia, Chicago, some of the biggest LA, I've got a good friend out there in the office sector, you know, there's going to be some part of the sector that absolutely demands that type of space. The question is how much do you really need there what does that look like? And their footprint probably is going to be less because they have a lot more flexibility in there. Okay, so I just go kind of macro how that's going to play out. So you and I sit around and go, maybe that's a billion square feet of demand in the U.S. Great, let's go find that. And maybe it's undersupplied by half a billion right now, which is a unique opportunity. Maybe there shouldn't be 50 million of less of square feet being built. There should be 300 million square feet being built right now. I think related property, some guys are taking that strategy. Let's just go build the nicest stuff out there and we're going to attract the outsized demand because there's nothing out like it. We're going to put all the bells and whistles on it. You know, the other side to me is I'm like, well, you also, you know, the GSA is a large user space in the U S last data I saw is they're using, utilizing like 10% of that space. Who's the GSA? Yes. Yes. Who, who is the so, GSA? Sorry. What does that oh, say? Sorry. Government services administration. It's all the government leases. So, you know, so I heard like DC's like a ghost town because, you know, no one's requiring these guys to go back to the office. So to me, it's, Real estate has become very, very, very niche. Like you've got the big four, you know, you had office and you had retail and you had multifamily, like an industrial. That was kind of it, you know, 20 years ago. Now it's so specialized. You got cold storage, you got data storage, you got AI. So I mean, so you got all these little slices and even hospitality's got their slices. We've seen office with their slices. So anyway, we're really gifted and talented at taking really complicated stuff and trying to bundle it into more generalist approach. And I get it why we do that. It's how we survive. But, you know, I think the conversation continues to go, you got to keep pulling this stuff apart and finding where the value is. And New York's a perfect, New York's a test case for office. Let's watch, see what happens. And I think Adam, you know, I, you know, I've talked to guys, a lot of our three lenders are in New York and I ask them all the time, like who's in the office, what's going on and their policy you know, where are they heading out? And I was up in New York three weeks ago and walked the streets. And I'm like, it's interesting. I, I, that's going to be a frontline area that's going to be very intriguing to see how it plays out. And all the bigger cities, you know, on that front. And what do you think to be, you know, as pessimistic as possible, what do you think is the city that has the biggest issues where, it, it, you know, it will just be a, a ghost town? I mean, you mentioned D.C. Well, I mean, San Francisco is kind of crosshairs. Seattle, you know, it seems like some of the West Coast towns. LA has got their own challenges. You know, the, the ones, the darlings, like the, you know, Austin, you know, Charlotte, Nashville, some of these darlings that people thought were immune, they're having, they're starting to have some issues on a, downtown Raleigh here. We were, these are smaller growth markets. Atlanta's had some areas, but now we've got challenges. The, the downtowns have been, I think, been hurt the most in a lot of areas and even in the smaller cities. I'm just really interested to see how they're going to recycle this. You know, I mean, New York always comes back, right? You're going to assume that. And ambition to see when it comes back, you know, how it impacts. Because office is a core for so many things. Restaurants, you know, mm -hmm. hotels. I, You know, I've got some close 
peers in the hotel industry and they said we're it's it's been really tough on downtown locations and some of these boutique nicer hotel or you know the business traveler you know so all that stuff just takes time so i just i'm i'm so intrigued how it's tied to the financial side and all these lenders and where the, you know, the REITs and how that's going to impact. And then where's the play? You know, we want to make some money. You got to figure that one out too. Yeah. So you said it's not a good time to sell. I mean, what would have to happen for you to say now is a great time to deploy stuff. And I'm, I'm an aggressive buyer, you know, going for the Hail Mary here. <laughs> uh, for office, I wouldn't sell anything because I, there's nothing pricing. just got cream, but Wow, that's an interesting question. It's like, I feel like to me, you know, if, if, if I had to make a stab at something, it's if I could pick up properties and what I believe forward, like locations that are going to benefit from mixed use, something like that, I can pick, pick up you know, land value. I'd be buying that all day long, mm-hmm. you know? Just um, buying land and then building on it later. Yes, yes. And reposition. And, and, and we're seeing that we're seeing that starting to happen. So guys who can create a fund that says, you know, let's buy a hundred office buildings at land value. And then we're going to, we're going to ride this out. And, you know, we believe it's worth, you know, X dollars over time. And there are prime locations where, you know, you got so many open source, closed source data. There's so much information where things are trending toward outside of, you know, disruption. I get that. There's some things that obviously out of control, but you know, there's enough data that gives you some insight and, and AI is going to impact our space materially the next two to three years. It's been a quiet, discussion AI, but you know, that there's going to be, you know, AI is going to probably make a lot better decisions than most humans do when it comes to investment decisions, but someone's got to go execute. Right. So that's the, that's the messy part and the upside. Your eyes wide open when it comes to work from home, remote work, hybrid work, which of course, you know, began for real because of COVID because uh, people were staying home to stay safe. I think it's fair to say we are not in that environment now. People who are working from home, they're not doing it because, you know, they most people are because they have, uh, you know, a fear of getting sick. They're doing it because they can and because the culture has has shifted. And so you've been eyes wide open and sort of your, your realistic attitude towards the the lasting nature of that phenomenon that everyone's not going to go back to work immediately, um, you know, has served and will continue to serve, um, you know, you and your, your firm well. But longer term, do you really think that is, is I mean, are 20 years from now, 100 years from now, are people going to say ah, that, that, that global pandemic, that was a catalyst for people, the, the five-day work week uh, where you go into the office and you take the train and you, know, you wear a, a business outfit, that, was, that marked the, the beginning of the end. And it was an abrupt end uh, of that. And then the era of remote work or hybrid work began. Or do you think, you know, gradually those occupancy rates, you know, maybe we... You know, we're at 50 percent, and then fifty five percent, sixty percent. Where in ten years we really are back to twenty nineteen. Like, what's your long term uh, view? Yeah, I mean, I kind of look at back to human behavior. I think that one of the challenges, you know, we've had what I call seven head fakes. It became around this is during COVID, around the holidays. You know, it was like, oh, everybody's going to go back to work after Memorial Day. Oh, then it was Labor Day. That was after New Year's. Just never happened. And then people, you know, when they adjust and get anchored. And a lifestyle, and, and the perception is that the productivity is 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 good enough. They understand the value of mentorship and people getting together, so there is a push there. So I've been a hybrid CEO for 15 years, so I've actually lived this. Where I, you know, I wasn't there in the office every day. I develop relationships over time. I meet people for coffee. I come in and talk to my team. Mm-hmm. You know, there's this there's this quality of touch that is really, really important. If you do it well, you, it's, it's less about end frequency and less about quantity. 
And I think if you, I think that's where we're heading. And, it, and this physical space is almost irrelevant. It's where you decide to get people together at the right moment, come together as a team, let's spend time. But I think you can do that. And I love my FaceTime and my personal time. I think you just want to put more value on it. And I, you know, I think it's less about being back in the office. It's where the gathering spot is. What do you get accomplished in here? What are you getting done? I think it's just a different mindset shifting. And I, and that cat, I think that cat's out of the bag that we're going that direction. I took, it took four, we're going on four years now with this, you know, technology's gotten better. So I think, you know, and the value, the time together is really important. You know, I think the, you know, the, the intimacy of the relationship, the fierceness of the conversation, the upside of the conversation, I think, you know, people, that tension's good in an office environment if it's done really, really well. So all that stuff coming together. And I think there's a lot of wasted time, nine to five, you know, for five years. So, I mean, for five day weeks. So, mm-hmm. I, you know, that I'm like, this is really interesting where it's heading. So 20 years from now, who knows what it looks like, but it's a, it's definitely a model that I feel that there's people, you know, you're going to be driven people together for the right moments and the right time and doing some really great enterprising thoughts And then you're going to break out and do your thing. And there's autonomy in there and there's performance metrics and, you know, accountability in there. And you don't have to do it being in front of everybody in in, in physically in in person. So, so anyway, I, that's, you know, so what does that look like? Who knows, Jack? I mean, I think there's a lot in there, but anyway, that's kind of what I believe. Well, that's a really nuanced perspective and it sounds pretty unbiased from a guy whose business is primarily in commercial real estate and, and offices, you know, because a lot of time you hear from people who, you know, office people who go, go on TV. And of course they're saying everyone's going to go back to five days a week in the same way, you know, if you interview the CEO of a copper mine, they're going to say, yeah, I think there's a shortage of copper. You know, it's just like, it's, 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 not, it's natural. And it's int- very interesting that you say uh, you've been hybrid for in some, some regards for 15 years. I wonder if that's because you're, you're either working from home or because you're, you're, you're out in Florida, like hunting, hunting a deal or something. So what is the, what is the clearing price for office? Is office worth less? You know, if, if, if Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, people having this great experience in the office, but they're not there Monday and Friday, if it, you know, if it was $20 a square foot, you know, is it, is it 40% less? Is it a, uh, what that's $12 a square foot because of Monday, you know, minus four for Monday, minus, minus $4 for, for Friday. There's a need for real estate because every day you wake every- when we're alive on this earth, we are occupying some kind of real estate. Back to your question, like what is what is office worth today? If if you're if you're you know you know companies may hold on to the old thing like we want to keep this much space, but you know we got people only on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, so we don't need it the other days. Is there other ways to utilize that space, or is it a different model, or are there different features to it? I don't know. That's all good. That's all good part of discovery as we go through this kind of you know this shift. I just know that, you know, whatever was in 2019 of office is now so broken that to value office today is a little bit like you're rolling the dice, you know, and it's, I mean, it's not that extreme, right? But there's still enough in there going, you know, what is the, there's a big debate, I think it was in New York, all the discussion about amenities. There was a big debate, like, issues was throwing good, we're amenitizing buildings, you're wasting, that's not really what they want. And you know, it's oversold and this, that, and the other, because that's a lot of money to put that to track tennis back. And then we go, then you go back to into human nature and culture. You know, we want to get together, but, you know, most people engage me about HBR, Harvard Business Review had a great article on passion. You know, what does passion really need? I want to be passionate and love what I do. They said this threshold about 20%. If you had 20%, like you love what you do, you, you know, if it falls below that engagement, drops off materially. If it goes above it, it becomes self-serving. Like I want more, more, I want more passion. 
And, you know, the way I look at it is the harder you work, the more difficult it is. You learn to appreciate the other things more, but there's got to be a right balance there. And companies have been, you know, probably done a really poor job with their employees. You know, where do you stand? Where's your growth? Here's the mentorship. It's kind of like, you know, it's been not really, you know, inspiring. So I don't know. There's a lot of stuff in there that is just really intriguing to me. And, and real estate just happens to be a part that touches people every day of their life. And there's, you know, if you can find a way to reposition going forward, there's an opportunity there. And that's what um, I think really intrigues me, at least my competitive side and making money and with investors and, you know, we got private equity groups, stuff like that. I think there's just, it's, it's just an intriguing time. It's an inflection point in real estate. You know? It is an inflection point. And they're definitely, I mean, if you're passionate about your work, you're going to be very, you're going to, you know, you're going to be a shark whether you're working at the office or you're going to be a shark when you're working at home. If someone's not passionate, they may, you know, they're not going to be a shark at work and they're not going to be a, sh a shark at, at home, but it's easier. It's a lot easier to, you, you have to put, you have to go through the motions in the office. You have to show up, you know, whereas when you work working from home, you know, you can just you know, move your mass pot around. It's, it's a lot harder for employers to track employees. Do you think that will be a, a, like drawing people back to, to the office? And I also think that, you know, firms who want to stop hiring or even reduce headcount, you know, layoffs are can be really you know bad bad for morale if you say everyone has to be in the office five days a week you know people who some people may leave the firm and there's so their cost savings and then also you know, i'm just speaking from a strategic point the people who stay may be you know a, a little bit more motivated so do you do you think that that will be a catalyst for back in the office even though i know people have been saying this for three years and it hasn't happened really but well i think yes i mean there's a cleansing going on getting back to office I, I here's my thing there is there's a percentage of, of companies that do it really 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 well they have a culture it's very intentional people understand it it's hugely engaging it's very fulfilling i mean if they're being honest they're like it, it has nothing to do with nine to five i'll be there like all day <laughs> and on the weekends <laughs> you know it's just what are you driving what's the product but I, i'm just saying to me that's a to, that needs to be bigger slice and then the question is where is that getting done Traditionally, we've called that the office, but that's been a small slice of, of of the culture of our business. I mean, most of the stuff you read and discuss are, you know, people, you know, it's it's become almost transactional. The, the loyalty is not there. They don't feel they're getting good direction from leadership. And that's age old. Not everybody's mm -hmm. going to do it. But, you know, I, you know, I think I've heard that, you know, less than 10% of the corporations really have a culture that people are inspired and fulfilled by. And it's hard to do, Jack. You know, it's a lot of work. But and you're also right people that people that saying, oh, my God, there's no culture of, of loyalty and there's no great corporate culture, unlike in the good old days. I'm like, when when was pe people, everyone, 100 percent people love going to work? And I don't know who said, you know, culture eats strategy for lunch. You know, I mean, I, that stuff, it does. You know, but I, I'm with you. Like, we've gone a long way. And, you know, you know, considering 100 years ago, how people used to work, it was like a privilege. You know, you're, you're the boss, you whatever they said. Now we've waken up and I think that's good. I like that pressure. You want, yeah. yeah. I love people that know how to manage up. Like I challenge my people all the time. Like, am I, I ask myself, am I rational? And do I think, you know, can you, can you influence me? And if I, if you tell me all this stuff, you know, am I pragmatic and they say yes. And I said, you better manage up well, because by you managing up well, we're going to do great things together because it can't come from leadership every time, but you got to have that culture built that way. And people got to feel valued and they got to feel like there's some risk there. There's some opportunity and stuff like that. But those, you got to spend a lot of time on those things. And I can tell you right now, beginning of my career in business, I did not do that well. And I learned a lot of hard lessons and I see the value in it, but 
technology is now added a whole new element to it. So back to my point, I think it's it's not as it's not going back to 2019 in office. It's not going to be everybody's remote. It's somewhere in the middle. But when you're in the middle, what that looks like should be very interesting and it better be super engaging in the culture, right? And I think you can do some great things. And you know, Jack, if you're super efficient and you're really good and you love what you're doing, you could do it in less time. You're just, you're like a machine, you know, and you need your personal time and development time. There's all that stuff in there, but striking that balance is really important. Right. And my final question is, what do you think if there is kind of a meltdown in commercial real estate or office, or if there already is a meltdown and it's just not being seen, what do you think the impacts of that are on the broader economy? Because, you know, obviously there's the subprime mortgage crisis, not saying, you know, this is anywhere going to be close to that. But, you know, a lot of those loans were owned by banks in very complex financial products owned by banks that were extremely integral to the the main economy. And so there was like structural damage to loan creation, you know, that lasted, you know, some cases over, over a decade. How... How important, you know, real estate is a huge industry office, you said 20 trillion, I don't, I don't know, you said, but I mean, can people kind of take their lumps and the economy won't really change or, you know, on the spectrum of people take their lumps, it won't really change to it's systemic. Where do you think this, this falls? It's an important question. It's an interesting question. It's a provocative question. I, you know, so let's, so, you know, office is, I mentioned about 20 trillion. So I think I heard something like 300 trillion worth of real estate. In real estate, there's so much mystery behind it. I, I, to me, it's there's this confidence issue. There's the psychology issue. It gets out that more banks are failing. You know, you know, basically, where does that bleed to? How fragile are we as you know, when it comes to our financial system right now. So it's all this stuff that kind of accumulates in my mind. I just feel like we're just very skilled at doing keeping things as positive as we can, knowing that sometimes these things work themselves out, which I'm in that camp too. There's a lot of work around and we've got some levers. Now the Fed's giving it some room by the rates, but that's a pretty blunt instrument, you know, start lowering rates. What does that mean? I just feel like, you know, we, I was very disappointed during the great financial crisis. I thought there was going to be a lot more fall in the real estate space, but then the Fed came in, there was, you know, whatever you want to call bailout, there was more money pumped in the system it never really happened. I was kind of hoping that I'd get a chance to experience the S and L crisis, the fallout on that. Tech wreck wasn't that bad. This one feels different to me in the context that, you know, if the Fed stays where they're at and they're willing to see a strong correction, and maybe we got to, you know, maybe there is too much wealth in this system that the Fed has basically created for this country, and maybe private equity. I've heard interesting debates about how the Fed feels, our Powell feels about private equity benefiting. That there is a there's a more of a major correction, but the but the lever is are, are they gonna capitulate and start you know drastically lower rates? Or are they gonna throw money back in the system? I, I'm very skeptical right now. I was probably the camp a year ago about the Fed maybe pivoting or putting money in the system because that seems to have been the bailout. As much how painful it could be, if we can stay rates longer, I'm I'm in your camp. I feel like the rates, you know could come down next year, you know, maybe they stay up here longer. But I just think that all these folks that were on, you know, you know, this low interest rate, you know, I don't know how much was floating out there, but all that lags and that just things are, I'm seeing the cracks were forming six to 12 months ago, but it's slow. Next year, I think I'm going to see if we stay at the rates we are now, and if we go back 50 bips, 100 bips in my space, I see some major material, either banks are going to get a bunch of properties back, or are they going to be taking much lower rates and they're going to feel more pain. So I, I just, I don't know, Jack, it just feels like there's going to be 
some material paint in there somewhere, but not unique to real estate, but real estate is going to be a big part of it. But, you know, a lot of guys are floating. Uh, we're floating. I think the lag effect could be a big impact. A lot of guys are, are floating, floating interest rate debt. That's more expensive as interest rates go up. So you said that in, in great financial crisis, you thought there would be more pain in the real estate world. I think what you meant is your world, the commercial real estate industry, maybe office. Obviously, the the you know, eye of the storm was subprime mortgages, you know, primarily owned by you know, families and, and, and individuals, so not commercial real estate. So do you think that you thought it would be, be worse than it actually was? That's interesting. I mean, do you think this could be worse than the commercial real estate in 2008? Uh, not worse than subprime in 2008, but worse than commercial real estate in 2008, which you said you, th- you thought it would be worse and it wasn't actually that bad because the Fed lowered rates. Yeah. I do. I mean, unless, unless, listen, unless we go to easing and we pump a lot of money in the system, then if we could, if we, if we stay in rates at, you know, four and a half, five percent, we don't pump a bunch of money in the system and, you know, QT, QT is a little tricky to me. I don't know really what, you know, there's a lot of stuff behind the scenes they're doing that I think I'm not really sure what the balance sheet looks like, but I'm like, yeah. And I think that's, you know, we, we probably need a good jolt here to get re, you know, a better foundation. I think we've been bailing ourselves out for 15 years and now's a chance to get there. And I'm not a big fan of MMT. I think that's complete. I'm not a fan of all of that and leading to socialism. It's not helpful for the private sector. Uh, and we had what 17 trillion of negative interest rate bonds. You know, what, what, what's happened to all that stuff? You know, that was, that was interesting discussion, you know, two, three years ago. So if we stay at four and a half, five percent, floating rate, you know, there's a correction, you know, bigger corrections out there. Now what's happened behind the scenes, you know, there's a lot of powerful people doing some things that knows the hell they're doing to make it not as worse. Wait, what's the, what do you mean? What's the last part you said? Oh, just like behind the scenes. Like if I think about like the banking industry, when I'm talking to these lenders, you know, is the mm. FDIC and, you know, OCC, you know, what are they doing? So, we don't see banks, a bunch of banks failing next year or two years or these smaller banks. You know, if you, it comes out, you know, I, you know, I think at SVB and Signature and First Republic, I'm like, okay, that was over there. But I don't know, I'm talking to these lenders and I mean, they're behaving interesting that, you know, I, I don't know. There's, there's, I'm not, I'm not saying it's like this dark mystery in it. I'm just saying there's a lot of tools out there to make it to blunt this or mute it. I like your word, you know, so it's not as bad. <laughs> We're good at that. Yeah. And uh, so last question, I promise. Uh, but uh, so the banks, do you think that uh, private credit and non-bank financial lenders are going to take a, a large share as banks pull back or decrease their rate of, of lending? Oh, it's interesting. Well, they they did you know, for a while. You know, the private debt funds came in, jumped in. I'd say yes. I mean, we're, we're you know, we're talking to a, a handful right now on buying debt back. And, you know, you know, it's 750 to 950 over SOFR, you know, and it's all, it's very punitive, but it's, and it's in a first lien position. So yeah, they're sitting on a lot of money and they're seeing a ton of deals there. When, I, when the guys I'm talking to, they just said, you know, there's still enough uncertainty, at least in our space. Some of the spaces they probably like better. I get it, but there's still just enough out there that, yeah, they're still being pretty, it, it appears they're being cautious, but it's, they're still, you know, frequent, which is stuff they measure a lot of the um, private equity mm-hmm. spaces, four or 500 billion, the dry gunpowder in the real estate space sitting on the sidelines. So it's, it's just a lot of money out there still, you know? Yes. Yes. And it, although some of that dry powder is, money that their clients have agreed to give them but haven't given them the money yet. So they the powder's there, they don't have the power. They have to they have to call their clients to give them the powder. 
That's right. And that's a whole different. Yes, we, we, we have some of those relationships. Those can get tricky, too. Yeah. Well, well Anthony, thank you uh, so much for coming on. This has been a, a, uh, a true joy to hear your insights. You know, you have a perspective for someone who you know, studies the real estate industry or is an analyst at a, at a big firm that their analysis is really valuable. But it's, it's also, you know, it's, it's so different to hear someone who you know, is actually doing deals and, and really uh, you know, on the front lines of this. And uh, very interesting to, to hear that you, you think there are a lot of challenges, to put it lightly. And, you know, I thank you so much for being generous with, with your time. You know, and thanks everyone for watching. Welcome. Thank you, Jack. Really enjoyed it. Take care. Forward Guidance, the program you just enjoyed, hopefully, can be viewed on YouTube at BlockWorks Macro or heard as a podcast on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Episodes are typically released on Apple and Spotify a few hours before they air on YouTube. Please leave a review on Apple Podcast if you feel so inclined.